Hello, I'm Alan Stanford, and welcome to Lear in Longford. Ten the Lords of France and Burgundy, Gloucester. I shall, my lord. Tell me, my daughters, which of you shall we say doth love us most? Like a desert needs rain, like a town needs a I love you more than word can wield the matter. Like a drift in its wind, hot moon, I need your love. On thine allegiance, take her or leave her. I need your love. Nothing. I have sworn. I am firm. Thy dowerless daughter, King, thrown to my chance, is queen of us, of ours and our fair France. Prescribe not us our duties. He always loved our sister most. We shall further think of it. Give me the letter, sir. Conspiracy. Sleep till I wake him. Longford, wonderful ring to it. Shakespeare could have written it. Now, over the next four weeks, we're going to work our way through this remarkable and wonderful play, possibly one of the greatest plays ever written. We're going to try to bring it to life with the help of some students and teachers from four local schools. St. Mel's College and Skullwirra in Longford, Carrigallan Vocational School in County Leitrim, and what will be our adopted home for the four programmes, Moyne Community School. We're going to pass through the play in chronological order. We're going to take certain scenes out of the play. We'll look at a number of, of the pivotal scenes, the scenes where the play takes its turns. And we're going to do this with the help of some budding young actors from each of the schools uh, who are our colleagues for this uh, particular adventure. We're going to get some very good exam advice from teachers who know all about taking exams and the way the, uh, the play is approached by the examiners. And all four schools are going to take part in our King Lear quiz, which will happen at the end of each program. Now, a few words about why we actually study Shakespeare. Shakespeare is, and always has been considered uh, for the last 400 years, one of the, if not the, greatest single playwright the world has ever known. Not simply because he wrote great plays, but because he wrote plays about real people. Not real people in history always, but the people in his plays are always incredibly real. When he writes a play about kings and princes and queens and all of that, they're not just kings and queens. They're actual real human beings who suffer real human conditions. And you can find the storylines and the behaviors and the attitudes of the people in his plays in just about every walk of life. 
And almost every one of his great plays has been adapted or uh, rewritten in different formats. One of the great classic science fiction films of all time, The Forbidden Planet, was based on his play, The Tempest. Uh, this particular play, King Lear, has been reformatted in so many different ways. There was a, a rather wonderful book and film called A Thousand Acres that was released recently uh, based on the King Lear subject, which is about the ownership, the possession of land, and the decision of how to distribute it, how to give it away. It's a story that this country of ours has known for a thousand years as well. What do you do with the land, and how do you get the love of the people that really matter? And also, who you really are. What is being a king? A king is not just simply somebody who sits on a throne. A king has to rule. A king has to take responsibility. And when you give away responsibility, when you give away the authority, you're no longer a king. You're just a man. So all those subjects are discussed rather brilliantly in this particular play. The play itself is centered around two families, the family of Lear and the family of Gloucester. So there are two storylines going in parallel right the way through it. Lear has decided to give away the responsibility of being king, but wants to keep the authority, wants to be treated like a king, even though he doesn't behave like one. And he's got to learn that if you don't take responsibility, you don't have any authority. Gloucester, on the other hand, is being tricked by one of his sons. One of the sons is legitimate, the other is not. One of the sons will inherit, the other will not. So the guy who will not inherit decides, that's not fair. I want everything. He's a character who begins the play with nothing, and just before the end of the play, he's almost become king. So you've got these two stories going in parallel. And over these four programs, we're just going to examine aspects of each of those two stories and discover how they develop. So we're going to begin our first scene we're nicknaming the love test and it takes place right at the very beginning of the play and it is the moment when Lear before dividing up the kingdom wants to know which daughter deserves most but his way is not by saying who's the best at ruling who's the best at governing his way is infinitely more selfish it's about who loves me most so we call it the love test now for this scene we're going to have the talents of Kieran Gill, who's going to play Lear, Rachel Sloan, who's going to play Regan, Lisa Sheridan, who'll play Cordelia, and Claire Gormley, who'll play Goneril. <laughs> now, the first scene we're going to look at is right at the beginning of the play. What gets us here? You've had a couple of people walk onto the stage having a discussion about the breakup of the kingdom. Gloucester and Kent. And what they're saying is, Nobody really knows what's going to happen. The king at one point said he preferred the Duke of Albany. At another point, he preferred Cornwall. But nobody's very clear what the king is planning to do. It's all very much up in the air. There's an uncertainty in the atmosphere. But then in comes the king. In comes his three daughters. And the king has said, I'm going to split the kingdom up. I'm going to give it all away. I'm going to divide it between the three of you. But there's a condition. And the condition is in the following question. Which of you shall we say that love us most, that we our largest bounty may extend where nature doth with merit challenge? Goneril, our eldest born, speak first. Sir, I, I love you more than word can wield the matter. 
dearer than eyesight, space and liberty, beyond what can be valued rich or rare, no less than life, with grace, health, beauty, honour, as much as child ear loved or father found, a love that makes breath poor and speech unable, beyond all manner of so much, I love you. What shall Cordelia speak? Love and be silent. Of all these bounds, even from this line to this, with shadowy forests and with champagnes rich, with plenteous rivers and wide-skirted meads, we make thee lady. To thine and Albany's issues be this perpetual. What says our second daughter, our dearest Regan, wife of Cornwall? Speak. I am made of that self-metal as my sister, and prize me at her worth. In my true heart I find she names my very deed of love. Only she comes too short, that I profess myself an enemy to all other joys which the most precious square of sense possesses, and find I am alone, felicitate in your dear highness's love. Then, poor Cordelia, and yet not so, since I am sure my love's more ponderous than my tongue. To thee and thine, hereditary ever, remain this ample third of our fair kingdom no less in space, validity, and pleasure than that conferred on Goneril. Now, let's hold there for a second. What have we learnt already in this scene? That Lear proposes to give away the land, that he's going to give it equally between his three daughters, since he says that there is no difference in the two apportionments, that all are getting the same. So his plan all along has not been whoever says they love me most will get more. He just wants to be told that he's loved. And two of his daughters have fulfilled that. One of them says is, I love you more than anything in the world. The second one, who's much cleverer, says, I love you just as much as my sister did, only she isn't really loving you as much as I am because I actually would never love anybody else except you, which is rubbish when you think about it. She's already married, so she either doesn't think much of her husband or she's lying. And I think we can all work out which she's doing. And the third daughter has kept chipping in on the sidelines. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? I'm not going to lie. I can't lie. So already the dramatic content of the scene has been established. Two daughters playing Lear's game and a third saying, I don't know what to say. And Lear giving away equal chunks of the kingdom. Then he turns to the third daughter. Now our joy, although our last and least, to whose young love the vines of France and milk of Burgundy strive to be interested. What can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? Speak. Nothing, my lord. Nothing? Nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Now let's hold it there again. We now establish very clearly that Cordelia doesn't have a husband. She's got two suitors. There's two guys out there who want to marry her, but she hasn't got married yet. And he asks her the same question. What can you say to draw a third more opulent? He's lying. The kingdom's divided into equal parts. And she replies the most important word in the play, and this word is repeated more in the play than any other, the word nothing. She can say nothing. And he says nothing, and she says nothing. Shakespeare keeps using that ver very, very strongly. Nothing will come of nothing. Let's pick it up. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Unhappy that I am, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I love your majesty according to my bond, no more nor less. How, how, Cordelia, mend your speech a little, lest you may marry your fortunes. Good, my lord, you have begot me, 
bred me, loved me. I return those duties back as our right fit. Obey you, love you, and most honour you. Why of my sister's husbands if they say they love you all? Happily, when I shall wed, that Lord whose hand must take my plight shall carry half my love with him, half my care and duty. Sure I shall never marry like my sisters to love my father all. But goes thy heart with this? Ay, my good Lord. So young and so untender. So young, my Lord, and true. And that brings us to the conclusion of the excerpt. And what do we learn from it? That Cordelia has an almost congenital need to tell the truth. She's almost obsessed with it. She will say exactly the truth. She hasn't got the capacity to lie the way her sisters have. She doesn't love her father any less. In fact, as we go later into the play, we'll discover she loves him a hell of a lot more. But the reality is she can only tell the truth. And the truth is, I love you, I honour you as my father. I love you and honour you as the king. But my sisters say they love you and not their husbands. I'm sorry, if I'm going to marry somebody, it's going to be for love. And half my love will go with my husband. So what she's proven in the play straight away is she is a child of love. She is capable of love, but she is honest about it. She is truthful about it. And Lear's attitude is, you don't love me. At that point, because she doesn't get down and grovel, because she doesn't lie, because she doesn't exaggerate, Lear thinks, you don't love me. And that's the lesson of the scene. I think that Lear as a play shows Shakespeare at the very peak of his abilities. This is an incredibly pure play. It doesn't depend on logics of time. It doesn't depend on logics even of storyline. It depends on logics that are based purely on emotion and interreaction and uh, behaviorism. This is a play that's about psychology. This is a play that's about an intensity of emotion and an intense touching of the human condition. If you look at the way the play is structured, you have this magnificent examination of a mental breakdown going on as Lear begins slowly to have the ground taken from under him, as his authority disappears and everything that has felt stable in his life crumbles away. And instead of it just being a physical downfall, it's quite literally a mental breakdown as he descends to the point of virtual madness. Now, this was Shakespeare writing 400 years before Freud ever worked it out. Uh, Shakespeare had this phenomenal understanding of the human condition. It's an immensely economic play. The use of language within it is so pure. It's a, a, a classic example of the economy of writing, of, of these huge themes, uh, because he's dealing in terms of, of a mental storm, of the, the torment and, and tempest of the mind. He demonstrates that by clashing Lear's tormented mind against an actual tempest. So he storms against the storm. The storm is both external and internal. That's incredibly modern and incredibly clever writing. <laughs> Okay, now as I said at the beginning, this play has two clear storylines, the story of Lear and the story of Gloucester. And with the next scene we're going to look at, we're going to look at the beginning of the Gloucester storyline. Gloucester is, you might consider Gloucester to be one of the king's principal aides, principal allies, he'd be like a prime minister. Uh, so he has a lot of authority in the state, but he's not powerful, he's not one of the dukes, he's only the Earl of Gloucester. 
it brings him slightly down the pecking order. <laughs> so that now the king has given away the land, the land is in the control of the Duke of Albany, the Duke of Cornwall. Those two guys are now the bosses. The Earl of Gloucester works lower down the pecking order. He's got two sons, Edmund and Edgar. Edgar, the legitimate son, Edmund, the bastard or illegitimate son. Edmund wants land. Edmund wants power. Edmund wants to inherit. The only way he can do it is to get his brother disinherited. So he has to lie and cheat. He's going to follow his nature, another important word in the play, and his nature is to lie and cheat, but to get what he wants. So he's going to trick his father into believing that Edgar wants to kill him and make sure that Edgar is run out and that he is made the true inheritor. And there's another important word in this scene as well, and we'll pick it up as we get there. A word that occurred in the very first scene of the play, and as I said before, is the strongest, most often repeated word in the play. Nothing. The reason why, I'll explain at a later point. But keep hold of that word, nothing. Keep it in your mind all the time. So, the beginning of the Gloucester story, Edmund first tricks Gloucester into believing that Edgar wants to kill him. For this, Michael Kilbride will play Gloucester, and uh, Kuma Kaneswaram will play Edmund. <laughs> Let's start the scene. Edmund, how now? What news? So please, your lordship. None. Why so earnestly seek you to put that letter in your pocket? I know no news, my lord. What paper were you reading? Nothing, my lord. No? What need that terrible dispatch of it into your pocket? The quality of nothing hath not such need to hide itself. Let's see. Come, if it be nothing, I shall not need spectacles. Now, let's stop there for a second. In this, Edmund proves himself a brilliant manipulator. He doesn't go to his father and say, look what I found, Dad. He says, nothing. He pretends that he doesn't have a letter. He pretends that there's nothing going on. And what does that do? It makes his father more suspicious. He walks Gloucester into a trap. And the trap is Gloucester's own imagination. What have you got there? Nothing. Yes, you have. No, I haven't. Give it to me. Gloucester is led into the trick by Edmund. And it proves right from the very beginning just how clever a manipulator Edmund is. Let's pick it up from there. I beseech you, sir, pardon me. It is a letter from my brother that I have not all or read. And for so much I have perused, I find it not fit for your o'erlooking. Give me the letter, sir. I shall offend, either to detain or give it. The contents, as in part I understand them, are to blame. Let's hold it there. What he's saying is... I haven't properly read it, so I don't know what it's about, so I don't want to give it to you. Give it to me. No, I, I really don't think you should have it. He's following that same trick through. He's teasing Gloucester. He's teasing him with the idea of what's in this letter. By this moment, Gloucester is so determined to read it that nothing will put him off. So Gloucester will take it seriously and won't think of it as a trick. The fact that Edmund didn't want to give it to him makes it all the more believable. Carry on from there. Let's see. Let's see. I hope, for my brother's justification, he wrote this, but as an essay or taste of my virtue. This policy and reverence of age makes the world bitter to the best of our times, keeps our fortune from us till our oldness cannot relish them. I begin to find an idol and a fond bondage of oppression of age tyranny, who sways, not as it had power, but as it suffered. Come to me, that of this I may speak more. If our father would sleep till I'd wake him, you should... Enjoy half his revenue forever, 
and live, dear beloved, of your brother, Edgar. Now, let's hold it there again. What does this letter say? Edmund has written it, pretending it was from Edgar. And it says, I'm fed up having to do what my father tells me. I'm fed up having to live in his house. I'm fed up having to obey his rules. It sounds just like a disgruntled teenager, doesn't it? I'm sure we've all got that feeling in our little hearts. <laughs> we all have that feeling. It's human. Shakespeare knew. Shakespeare wrote about the way people actually think. Gloucester would recognize it. He probably felt like that when he was a teenager. Everybody wants to get out, make their own way. Edmund has written the letter very cleverly. He also says, if our father sleep till I waked him. You can interpret this in a lot of ways, but the way I prefer to interpret it is, it is a suggestion of if he were dead. Sleep till I waked him. When somebody sleeps till the point when we wake them, when we have a wake, it means they are dead. That's what he's suggesting. If only he were dead, you and I can split the inheritance between us. You would enjoy half his revenue. You and I will get the lot. To an old man like Gloucester, that does not sound very nice. Let's read on. Hmm, conspiracy. Sleep till I wake him. You should enjoy half his revenue. My son Edgar, had he the hand to write this, a heart and a brain to breed it in, when came this to you? Now, he can't believe it. I can't believe it. My son Edgar, could he have written this? Did he write that? It's impossible. But it goes on. Who brought it? It was not brought me, my lord. There's the cunning of it. I found it thrown in at the casement of my closet. You know the character to be your brother's. If the matter were good, my lord, I'd just swear it were his. But in respect of that, I would fain think it were not. It is his. It is his hand, my lord. But I hope his heart is not in the contents. Thank you. I think another round of applause. This is a play that's absolutely rigid with letters. There's a positive postbag going on. Everybody seems to be sending letters to everybody else, but it's all to do with the fact that information is important. Aside from the dramatic and emotional plots that are going on, there's a huge subplot of a war, a civil war that is brewing and taking place and eventually bursting out in the play. There's one letter in particular that's terribly important. It's a letter that's written by Goneril to Edmund. In it, she basically proposes that he murder her husband and marries her and marry her. Now, that letter is actually an act of high treason, since, because of the way uh, the social order was worked out, her husband, Albany, is actually more important than she is. She sends the letter with her faithful servant, Oswald. Oswald would rather die than give that letter up. He passes through Regan's house. Regan offers him just about anything in order to get the letter. He refuses. He then goes on his way trying to find Edmund to deliver the letter and on his way comes across old Gloucester. He tries to kill him and is himself killed. But with his dying breath, he says, hand that letter to Edmund without realizing that he's put it into the hands of Edgar, Edmund's brother. Edgar reads the letter, realizes his importance, takes it on to Albany. At the moment that he's giving the letter to Albany, Edmund, who is the subject of the letter, is there with him. It's the most exciting piece of, of dramatic construction that that one piece of information that's eventually going to bring Goneril and Regan and Edmund down is there all the time within Edmund's grasp. Now for our next scene, we're going to look a little bit further into the Gloucester story. 
Edmund has already tricked his father into believing that Edgar wants to kill him. He's now got another problem. He's got to convince Edgar that Gloucester is out for his blood. He's got, in other words, to get Edgar away from Gloucester, because if Gloucester questions Edgar, he'll discover that the whole thing is a setup. So the next thing is, fool your brother into thinking he's in danger. And he does this quite brilliantly. He is brilliant. After all, he's a very good forger. He convinced Gloucester that it was Ed Edgar's handwriting. He's a great trickster. He's a character in the play that everybody loves. That's be probably because he's the meanest and lousiest person in the play. Anyway, let's see the way that Edmund now sets about tricking his brother. Come, come. When saw you my father last? The night gone by. Spake you with him? Aye, two hours together. Parted you in good terms. Found you no displeasure in him by word or countenance. None at all. Bethink yourself wherein you may have offended him, and at my entreaty forbear his presence till some little time had qualified the heat of his displeasure. Now, we'll stop there. And we'll pick up with that last sentence. What he's doing is saying, he's, he's playing the same trick. He's making his victim confident and then pulling the rug from under him. Did you see my, uh, our father? Yeah. Did he get on okay? Yeah, fine. Was everything all right? Yeah. Were you happy when you left him? Absolutely. Then why does he hate you? And immediately pulls a trick. Let's pick it up from that last sentence, Kumar. Bethink yourself, wherein you may have offended him, and at my entreaty forbear his presence till some little time had qualified the heat of his displeasure, which at this instant so rages in him that with the mischief of your person it would scarcely allay. Some villain hath done me wrong. That's my fear. And there's a lovely moment. Somebody's done something, some villain, somebody's, somebody's out to get me. And Edmund says, do you know something? I think you're right. <laughs> and who is out to get him? Edmund. Edmund always tells the truth, because the truth he can never be caught out on. It's one of the great tricks of life, and Shakespeare understood it. If you always tell the truth, they can't get you for lying. The trick is to tell the truth the way that it, it works for you, and that's what Edmund is so skillful at. Let's have those last two lines again. Some villain hath done me wrong. That's my fear. I pray you have a continent forbearance till the speed of his rage goes slower. And, as I say, retire with me to my lodging, from whence I will fitly bring you to hear my lord speak. Pray you, go, there's my key. If you do stir abroad, go armed. Armed, brother? Brother, I advise you to the best, go armed. And let's hold it there. Another wonderful trick. How do you make somebody feel very uncertain? You say, look, don't worry, I'll go and sort it all out. You, you go, look, go, go to my place. Here's the key to my flat. You go and hide out there. I'll sort it out. Don't, don't go out. Don't go anywhere. If you do, carry a gun. What? And immediately he ups the ante. He makes Edgar feel more afraid. I mean, isn't that great? You tell somebody, go hide. I'll sort it out. Everything's going to be fine. And the next thing you say to them is, by the way, if you're going out, carry a gun. I'd worry. Let's carry on. I am no honest man, if there be any good meaning towards you. I have told you what I have seen and heard, but faintly, nothing like the image and horror of it. Pray you, away. Shall I hear from you or none? I do serve you in this business. And there you have it. The scene is complete. And in a very short space of time, Edmund has managed to completely convince his brother that his life is in danger, that if he doesn't get away, that if he doesn't hide, the father is going to kill him. It's a brilliant piece of political manoeuvring in which he never tells a lie. He just manipulates the truth. So I'd like to thank Kumar again for playing Edmund, and this time Michael Atkinson 
for playing Edgar. And here's Kevin McElhenney from Moyne Community School, and he's going to give us some advice on answering a typical question on King Lear. Shakespeare's vision of the world in King Lear is essentially pessimistic. Would you agree? Discuss the view with the aid of suitable quotation and reference. As with any question, the most important thing at the outset is to be clear as to what exactly you are being asked. So the question could be rephrased along the following lines. Does the totality of the play's action suggest an ultimate lack of confidence in hopeful outcomes or further suggest that evil ultimately prevails over the good? When addressing this question, students should consider a few key elements within the play. For instance, what position does the play adopt with regard to cosmic justice? Pessimists often point to the way in which Shakespeare frequently and brutally juxtaposes hopeful appeals for protection and support to the defeat of those hopes and bleakly negative outcomes. Famously in the last scene, Albany's cry of the gods defend her is immediately followed by the entrance of the distraught Lear holding the dead Cordelia in his arms. This recurring structural pattern leads many to suggest that the governing spirit of the play is best expressed by Gloucester's despairing indictment of the heavens in Act 4, Scene 1, when he says, As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. More optimistic viewpoints would argue that the gods do not directly intervene, but exert a benign influence through the virtuous actions and heroic resilience of the good characters. Edgar suggests as much when, after he has prevented his blind father's suicide, he declares, Therefore, thou happy father, think that the clearest gods, who made them honours of men's impossibilities, have preserved thee. Another point which students should consider is the representation of suffering in the play. The seeming disproportionality between the failings of the characters and the extent and extremity of the suffering which these characters and those close to them must endure leads many towards a pessimistic interpretation. This grim view is often supported by reference to Kent's late statement, which welcomes Lear's death as a timely release from a callous world. He hates him that would, upon the rack of this tough world, stretch him out longer. Those inclined to a more optimistic view acknowledge the many moments of intense suffering in the play, but also point to the frequent redemptive effects which seem to stem from the experience of suffering. They argue that evil and suffering calls forth the answering values and virtues of compassion, pity and consideration for others, and also leads to the moral regeneration of characters such as Lear and Gloucester. How can suffering be seen as entirely worthless, therefore, they argue? The unfailingly optimistic Edgar best expresses this view that suffering is not the final word when he describes himself as a most poor man made tame to fortune's blows who by the art of known and feeling sorrows am pregnant to good pity. The student should also consider other aspects of the way the struggle between good and evil is depicted in King Lear. Does the decency and selflessness of characters such as Cordelia and Cornwall's servant outweigh the horrific inhumanity of characters such as Edmund and Goneril in any assessment of human nature? Is the concluding scene hideously grim, and if so, does it extinguish any consolatory embers of hope that flickered earlier in the action? Many agree with Kent's declaration late in the play that all is cheerless, dark and deadly, and consider Cordelia's death in particular to be cruelly gratuitous and too much to bear. Others suggest that although achieved at a high cost, evil is defeated, shown to be self-destructive, and that when the dust clears, Edgar and Albany remain to hopefully restore social and moral order in the future. Lastly, there are many perspectives on this issue, but answers should be supported by reference and adequate quotations. Students should also deal with some of the facets of this complex work that do not accord easily with the viewpoint they put forward.
My name is Denise Denning. Um, my favourite quote in King Lear is Edmund speaking, This speech of yours hath moved me, and shall perchance do good, but speak you on, you look as you had something more to say. I like this quote because Edmund turns back to the good person that he is inside and is trying to take away Gloucester's throne and he's trying to turn Gloucester against Edgar so he can have his kingdom and his name. But when Edgar speaks about how he stayed and stick through his father throughout everything, even when Gloucester didn't believe in him, Edmund thought it was very moving and he realised he did wrong and he tried to fix it by telling the people that he sent a letter away to kill Cordelia and Lear. And I like that quote because it shows that he's changed. I'm Madison Kenny from Moyne Community School and my favourite quote from King Lear is Poor fool and knave, I have one part of my heart that's sorry yet for thee. This is my favourite quotation as it demonstrates the humanity and understanding Lear has acquired through his extreme sufferings. He now understands and feels sorry for the fool. His suffering has made him a better person than he ever was before. Now in this next scene, we come back to the character of Lear and the Lear story. We meet three men. Lear, no longer the king, now just uh, the retired king. We meet the fool, who is uh, described as all licensed. In other words, he's somebody that Lear as king has always allowed to say whatever he wants. He's like Lear's conscience. And we meet Kent, who is now in disguise. He was banished at the beginning of the play, but he truly loves Lear as a true and faithful friend. So he comes back in disguise. So I want you to imagine that these three old guys are sitting there having a few pints. They're old friends. They like one another. And the fool is trying to teach Lear the importance of a very special word. Because he knows Lear still thinks he's the, the king. He still thinks he can command. He still thinks he's entitled to have a hundred knights. He still thinks he is the boss. And he's not. He's giving it all away. Everything has gone. All his power. He is now this one magic word. He is nothing. And the fool knows that Lear has to understand what nothing, being nothing, really means. Now, in this little excerpt, we have Edward McGonagall, who's going to be Lear. We have Shane Kelly, who is going to be the fool. And we have Shane Butcher, who is going to be Kent. So let's begin the scene. Sirrah, I'll teach thee a speech. Do. Mark it, Uncle. Have more than thou showest. Speak less than thou knowest. Lend less than thou owest. Ride more than thou goest. Learn more than thou throwest. Set less than thou throwest. Leave thy drink and thy whore. And keep in a door. And thou shalt have more than two tens to a score. This is nothing, fool. Then tis like the breath of an unfeed lawyer. You gave nothing for it. Now let's hold on there. What is he saying to Lear? Do nothing. <coughs> Do nothing. Go nowhere. Stay at home. Leave your drink in your whore. Do nothing. And all you'll have is the difference between two tens and a score. And what is the difference between two tens and a score? Sorry? Nothing. nothing. You'll be nothing. And Lear says... But this is nothing. And the fool says, yeah. And you deserve nothing, because you gave me nothing for it. You didn't even pay me. Let's carry on. Can you make no use of nothing, Nuncle? Why, no, boy. Nothing can be made of nothing. Pretty, tell him so much the rent of his land comes to. He will not believe a fool. And there you are. 
Can you make nothing out of nothing? No. Nothing can be made out of nothing. If you have nothing, you have nothing. And what the fool is trying to tell there is, that is exactly the price of your land. What you have, the value of everything you possess is now nothing. Keep going. A bitter fool. Dost thou know the difference, my boy, between a bitter fool and a sweet one? No, lad. Teach me. That lord that counselled thee to give away thy land. Come place him here by me. Do thou for him stand. The bitter and sweet fool will presently appear. The one in motley here. The other found out there. Dost thou call me a fool, boy? All thy other titles thou hast given away. That thou wast born with. This is not altogether fool, my lord. And with that, the scene reaches its absolute perfect completion. The fool says to Lear, Whoever told you to give away everything you have is an idiot. And Lear knows that the person who told him to give away everything he has was himself. And the, Lear is saying, uh, and the, the fool is saying quite clearly to Lear, You're a fool. And Kent agrees. And so the scene comes to its completion. The scene is quite pivotal in the play because it is the first time that the fool clearly states what his job is. It's to remind Lear constantly that he is and has nothing. He's given away power. He's given away authority. He's given away the one thing that makes him king, the land the responsibility for the land, the job. He's given it away. He now has nothing. You cannot be a king unless you sit on a throne and govern. The fool has to keep reminding him of this. And as we progress through the play in future programs, we'll discover how that lesson gets hammered home. A little round of applause for our actors. My name is Claire Green from Moyne Community School. One of the central teams in King Lear is the team of blindness. The blindest character of them all is King Lear. His first act of blindness comes with his love test. Lear is unable to see Cordelia's true love for him, and because of this, Lear banishes her and divides his kingdom between Goneril and Regan. But what he doesn't know is the plot to control all his kingdom. Through Lear's madness, he gets perfect vision of how wicked Regan and Goneril are and realises how wrong he was about Cordelia, but it's only too late for the outcome as Lear's blindness to the true ends of costing Cordelia's life and consequently his own. Like Lear, Gloucester is also disloyal children, but his blindness denied him the ability to see the goodness in Edgar and the evil plans of illegitimate Edmund. Through Edmund's clear plan to kill Gloucester, he destroys Edgar's rightful inheritance due to Gloucester banishing him. As Gloucester's eyes are plucked out, he learns to see. After being blinded by the deceit of Edmund for so long, it's now until he loses his physical sight that he realises the injustice in his treatment of Edgar, who helped and loved him along his way. Albany's blindness is of the result of his love for Goneril. Goneril controlled his life until Albany discovered her unfaithfulness to Goneril's letter to Edmund as they plot to kill Albany. But now he finally stands up against her authority. Unlike Lear and Gloucester, Albany survives this battle to remain ruler of Lear's kingdom. I'm Seamus Lynch and I'm from Moyne Community School. The most memorable journey in the play are concerning the changes in character of King Lear and Gloucester. Both King Lear and Gloucester are forced to embark on journeys into self-knowledge. At the start of the play, Lear is egotistical and very much self-absorbed. 
He demands obedience and immediate gratification from everyone. He is a very rash person and does not like people going against his wishes. We know this because he banishes Cordelia when she does not play the love test to his liking. And when Kent sticks up for her, he also gets banished. In the subplot, Gloucester is almost a mirror image of Lear. In the same way as Lear was betrayed by Goneril and Regan, Gloucester is also betrayed by Edmund. They are both poor judges of character. They see people for their appearances and not for their inner qualities. They are both tyrannical rulers. As the play develops, they both get traumatised and are caused a great deal of hardship. But because of these events, they become better people. They move from self-love through their suffering to more true understanding human beings. They now have new qualities and have grown morally. They both now recognise their failings and mistakes. They have been improved and purified through their troubles and sufferings. They move from egotistical and self-absorbed people to patient and compassionate human beings. Hi, my name is Catherine Cullum and I'm from Wine Community School. My favourite quote from King Lear is, I will die bravely like a smug bridegroom. I find this image really interesting. When a man gets married, he is ready to die for his wife and for love. A bridegroom is everything that Lear isn't. Loved, loving and entirely devoted. When Lear says this, he knows he is worth nothing and when he swears to gain vengeance and return some dignity to his last moments because he does not want his enemies to see him suffer the humiliation of death. My name is Raymond Riley from Wine Community School. My favourite quote from King Lear is, Fathers that wear rags do make their children blind, but fathers that bear bags shall see their children kind. The reason why this is my favourite quote is due to the fact that it is very ironic, in the sense that it is a very intelligent thing to say, and ironically, ironically it comes from the fool of the play. The quote simply states that a father who is poor and hasn't much to wear but rags makes their children indifferent to their miseries. This means he will do all in his power to make sure his children have enough and therefore the children will genuinely love him. While the fathers who keep their money will experience kindness from their children, but this kindness would not be out of love. It would come from their want of power and money. I'm Rachel Galligan from Wine Community School and my favourite quote from King Lear is I had rather lose the battle than that sister should loosen him and me. This is my favourite quote as it shows Goneril's love for Edmund and just how much it means to her to win him over her sister Regan as she is inevitably saying that she would rather lose the battle and the kingdom than to lose Edmund to her sister. I'm Colin Duffy from Wine Community School and my favourite quote from King Lear is I am a man more sinned against than sinning. This is my favourite quotation from this play as it is a very powerful quotation. It shows that Lear in his mind thinks that he has done little or nothing wrong. He is the victim and he is the one suffering compared to the other hypocritical wrongdoers he has been describing. There is even a note of grim satisfaction as he thinks of the guilty quaking as he dissociates himself from those who the gods are going to punish. He is denying the fact that it is his fault that the whole process has started. And here's Jackie McNerney from Moyne Community School with some advice on answering a typical question on King Lear. The question that I will be dealing with is what in your opinions are the most important changes that take place in the character of King Lear during the play? In answering this question, you need to look at the main changes, but before that, you would look at the way that Lear was at the beginning and when did the changes occur. Lear is king of Britain. He has absolute and total authority and power. As king, Lear has been flattered under bed all his life. People told him what he wanted to hear, whether it be true or not. Lear measures his daughter's love for him by a public declaration of how much each one loves him. Whoever professes their love most in terms of words, in Lear's mind, loves him the most. Quote, which of you shall we say doth love us most, that we our largest bounty may extend, unquote. Act 1, scene 1, 
Lear is blind to the fact that those that profess their love for him are not true to their word, and it is not until Act 4 that he realises this, when he says, They flattered me like a dog and told me I had white hairs in my beard, ere the black ones were there. Go to, they are not men of their words. They told me I was everything. Tis a lie. I am not argue-proof. Act 4, Scene 6. Lear, at the beginning of the play, is an arrogant, intolerant, rash and unreasonable old man. No one has ever questioned or challenged Lear. And when Cordelia does not flatter him with false claims of her love for him, he finds it as an insult to himself. He is so used to getting his own way that anyone who goes against him becomes victims to his violent rage, curses and threats. This is then followed by cruel, unjust punishments. Prime examples to look at here is Lear's treatment of his youngest daughter Cordelia and his loyal servant Kent. In the love test, Cordelia tells Lear that she loves him according to her bond, no more nor less. She is telling Lear that she loves him as a daughter should love her father, and that she is saving half her love for her husband. Lear's reaction is to disinherit her. Here I disclaim all my paternal care, propinquity and property of blood, and as a stranger to my heart and me, hold thee from this forever. Act 1, scene 1. This shows Lear's immaturity on what love is. He measures loves in terms of how many superlatives you can put into a speech. Lear also disowns Kent when he tries to make Lear see the error of his way in his treatment of Cordelia. Lear threatens Kent. The bow is bent and drawn. Make from the shaft. These two characters are the first people who have challenged Lear. Lear is also very hurt when Goneril and Regan cut down his knights. Lear measures his own value on material quantity, what he owns and possesses, and how large his train is. This is the last straw for Lear. He leaves and goes out into the storm. From here, we see small but subtle changes in Lear. Firstly, he goes mad, and it is through his suffering and experience that the major changes occur in Lear. Through the suffering he endures in the storm, Lear learns not to judge people by what they possess. Being stripped of everything made Lear recognise what it was to be truly human. He realises that everyone, including himself, sins. Lear realises that he made mistakes, but that he didn't deserve the treatment that he got from his daughters. One of the first places that we see a major change is when Lear and the Fool are out in the storm. He sees that the Fool is cold, as he is too. Lear suggests that they go and get shelter in the hovel. This is the first time that he has cared about or noticed the needs and feelings of others. My wits begin to turn. Come on, my boy. How dots, my boy? Art cold? I am cold myself. Poor fool and knave. I have one part in my heart that's sorry yet for thee. Act 3, scene 2. Lear then meets Edgar, disguised as poor Tom. He feels sorry for this half-naked lunatic beggar. But in meeting Edgar, the reality of what man is without possessions and flattery is shown to him. Is man no more than this? Act 3, scene 4. Lear's thoughts are now focusing on the real needs of man. He is turning away from the needs of the self to the needs of others. He also realises that he contributed to their suffering when he says, I have taken too little care of thee. Act 3, scene 4. The most important change of all comes when Lear, who is now sane again and is reconciled with Cordelia, is able to accept defeat and the humiliation of imprisonment with a positive joy. Come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds in the cage and ask of thee forgiveness. So we live and pray upon such sacrifices, my Cordelia, the gods themselves throw incense. Act 5, scene 3. Lear now knows who to trust and how to love. And from this he can acknowledge his own errors.
I am old and foolish. However, change comes too late for Lear. He is too old, and by the time he changes, he has lost everyone and everything that was important to him. My name is Louise Clark, and I'm from Moyne Community School. A theme that I found interesting is the theme of family. Family is an important concept in King Lear, given that the story unfolds around the destruction of Lear and Gloucester's families. The parallels between the two men are clear. Both have loyal children and disloyal children. Both are blind to the truth and both end up banishing the loyal children and making the wicked ones their heirs. One aspect of family explored is parental anxiety about children's love and a doubt that parents can depend on the natural bond between them and their children to guarantee love. Lear places more faith in the exaggerated lies of his two older daughters than in the unspoken truth of Cordelia. Gloucester's family also disintegrates. Edmund denied an inheritance because of his illegitimacy easily outmanoeuvres his credulous father and noble brother. Gloucester, blind to Edmund's lies, is betrayed by Edmund and is left blinded. Family is important in King Lear. The play explores the destruction of family and the calamitous consequences for the kingdom. The families in the play are not the supportive, loving institutions which can sustain characters through good and bad. Instead, mistrust, dishonesty and opportunism seem to be the qualities most evidential in the families in the play. Now we're moving on to our King Lear quiz. I've got four representatives, one from each of our schools. We've got Hannah Jones from Moyne, Aideen Flynn from Skullwirra, we've got Paddy Mulligan from St Mel's, and Lisa Tierney from Carrigallen. Now, I'm going to ask each one of you a question. There are two points for the correct answer. Hannah, which character speaks the following lines? Is our fast intent to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strength? Whilst we unburdened crawl toward death. Lear. <laughs> Correct. Two points. Aideen, <laughs> your question. I want both characters who speak the following lines. Nothing, my lord. Nothing? Nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Cordelia and Lear. Well done. Two points. <laughs> Paddy, this is a tricky one. Listen to the following. Sister, it is not little I have to say of what most nearly appertains to us both. I think our father will hence tonight. That's most certain. And with you, Goneril. Next month with us. Now, your question is, how long does Lear actually remain with Goneril? Uh, fortnight. Well done. Two points. <laughs> and now, Lisa, who was speaking in this scene? Canst tell how an oyster makes his shell? No. Or I neither. But I can tell why a snail has a house. Why? Why to put his head in, not to give it away to his daughters and leave his horns without a case. Which two characters? Lear and Kent. I give you one point. It's Lear and the Fool. Okay. And now, these are the quickfire questions. You've all got buzzers in front of you. Yep. So, first on the buzzer gets to give the answer. Okay. Here we go. 
Who are the three characters who come on stage at the beginning of the play? Aideen. Um, Kent, Gloucester and Edmund. Correct. <laughs> okay, I think you're in the lead now. Next question. Which of Gloucester's sons is the older? That's Paddy. Edgar. Correct. What happens to Kent when he tries to intercede? And even before I have the question out, that was Hannah. What happens? I'll finish the book. What happens to Kent when he tries to intercede on Cordelia's behalf? He's banished. Correct. Now, why does the Duke of Burgundy reject Cordelia as his wife? That was Aideen. <laughs> because she has no dowry. Because she has no dowry. Correct. When Kent disguises himself as a servant, what name does he give himself? That's Paddy. Caius. Caius is correct. Which means, at the end of that round, we have a tie, which is Aideen and Paddy at four points each. So we've got the tiebreaker. So only Aideen and Paddy can answer this question. First to the buzzer, where will Lear go once he's divided up the kingdom? And I think that was Aideen in first. To Goneril's Palace. Well done to Goneril's Palace. Aideen, so we're at, you're the winner. So well done to Skolwira. Now, on next week's programme, we're going to be taking a look at the journey that Leah takes in the course of the play, in the company of students from St Mel's College who will be performing the roles. In the meantime, thank you very much, and join me next week. That was Leah in Longford. The production team was Catherine Brennan, Angus McAnally, Siobhan Mannion, and Kevin Reynolds. On sound were Tony Lyons and Eddie O'Halloran. And our special thanks to the teachers, staff, and students of St. Mel's College and Skullwira in Longford, Carrigallan Vocational School in County Leitrim, and Moyne Community School. <laughs>
sleep till I wake him. 